Now to Occam's razor, though. And every day we make hundreds of choices, big and small, that build to become the story of our lives, the friends we make, the careers we choose, our partners and our purpose. Many of these decisions go unnoticed and unexamined. But Paul Hardesty, CEO of the Australian Institute of Marine Science in Queensland, says that if we're to make better choices, we need to start paying more attention to how we make those choices. And he argues that that approach might help us with the toughest choices of all, like which species to save in the uncertain future of the Great Barrier Reef. Here's Paul. We make decisions every day. Some are trivial and are made almost subconsciously. Which shoes to purchase? What to do today? First, clean the kitchen or go for a run. But others can have a profound effect on our lives. Which house to buy? What career to pursue? Or, as I'll discuss a bit later, how to save the Great Barrier Reef. And as the world gets more complex and risks escalate, the number and range of available options grows, and the implications of those choices that we make become more profound. The lines between individual decisions blur, and interdependencies reveal themselves. And of course, none of these decisions exists in a static world. Time flies in its arrow's arc. Options present themselves and then after a time disappear, like a series of doors opening and closing. You jump through one door, and a new set of doors appears, and so on. Each gateway offers new rewards and new risks. And as the number of doors and the speed with which they're opening and closing increases, it gets harder to figure out what to do. Sometimes, the complexity can become immobilizing. Literally. We can't choose, so we don't. But doing nothing, holding pat, is still a decision. And actually, it turns out it's quite a popular decision in a whole range of areas. Human nature has a big part to play in this. Doing nothing is often seen as a comparatively safe choice. Stick with what you know, even if it's not particularly fulfilling. The alternative could be a lot worse. People and organizations that make good decisions tend to have a better than average chance of being successful however they might define success. And so given its importance, it's not surprising that a whole science is developed around helping people make better, more informed decisions. And I've been studying decision-making and helping organizations make better decisions for over two decades. And in my experience, good decision-making comes down to following a structured process involving a few critical steps. Whether you're grappling with what car to buy or how to save the Great Barrier Reef, the process is essentially the same. The first step is to clearly articulate the objective of the decision-making process. What exactly are you trying to accomplish? Now, this sounds obvious, but in my experience, it's the single most difficult part of the process. Because believe it or not, even the most sophisticated organizations often do not have a clear idea of what they're trying to accomplish in the context of a specific decision. And the other reason is that formulating an objective requires exceptional clarity of language and reasoning. So let's say, for instance, that you have your heart set on buying a new car. You've always liked the look of the Tesla X, but you're not sure you can afford it. The Model 3 is cheaper, but it doesn't have all the features you want. What do you do? 
This is a classic trap. You've already jumped ahead to the solution, the Tesla X, before even clarifying the objective. It happens all the time. In formulating the objective, it's critically important to elevate. In other words, to move from the tactical to the strategic. Is the real objective to decide which Tesla to buy? I mean, after all, there's now four models out there to choose from, or is it something more fundamental? Perhaps what you're really after is the car that best meets your overall requirements, not necessarily a Tesla at all. Now that already sounds like a more sensible objective, but you can and you should take it further. Perhaps you're after the best overall sustainable transport solution. If so, buying a new car becomes only one of many options that are available to you. How about a used car? Walking, cycling, public transport? If you're honest, the real objective has nothing to do with transportation at all. Maybe you're looking for the best way to announce your green credentials or your status. If that's the goal, there are a bunch of other choices out there besides cars. So it's hard. And when there are a bunch of other people involved in the process, it gets even harder. Almost invariably, each person in the group is going to have a very different view of the question to be answered. And you see that all the time. Once the art objective is clearly articulated, preferably in a simple sentence, options for meeting that objective can be developed. Next, a set of key parameters against which the options can be evaluated is identified. These can include, for example, cost, time to implement, probability of success, environmental impacts, and so on. Then evaluate the options against these key parameters. There are a whole bunch of technical ways of doing that. But in all cases, we're looking for options that are robustly superior overall under a wide range of future conditions. And once we've settled on the option which best meets the objective, we can then communicate clearly and transparently how it was reached. In such a process, best results are always achieved when key stakeholders are involved in the process from the beginning. As a rule, the more complex and high profile an issue, the more money involved, the greater the risks, and the larger the number of stakeholders involved, the more important it is to move away from ad hoc decision making, which is the rule in our society, believe it or not, and towards a formal structured process. Now those conditions certainly describe the Great Barrier Reef. Not only is it of huge economic, environmental and social value to Australia and the world, but it is also facing a set of concurrent challenges that threaten its very future. A combination of poor water quality, predatory crown of thorn starfish, damaging cyclones and most worryingly climate change mean that if significant progress is not made soon, we face the substantial disappearance of the reef and reefs worldwide by mid-century. It's not that far away. In many ways, this is the ultimate decision-making challenge. Not only are we in a race against time, but the complexity of the issue is such that it's easy to become trapped. As I've just discussed, at far too low a level when assessing our objectives, or to become immobilized within the status quo. The scale of the issue is immense, covering hundreds of thousands of square kilometers, 
multiple political jurisdictions, and an impressive range of stakeholders with widely varying priorities. Tackling the issue is first and foremost an investment decision. Nothing meaningful at the scales required will occur without money, lots of it. But what exactly do we want to achieve? And given our inaction on climate change over the past decades, what options are still available to us? Do we want to help coral reefs survive the next few decades? Or through to the 22nd century and beyond? And if so, in what state? And to what ends? Curbing global greenhouse gas emissions alone will no longer be enough to achieve this. That possibility was perhaps open to us 40 years ago, but it has since closed. So how much should we also invest in developing on-reef interventions to build resilience and assist adaptation? Why and where? How do we best deploy our limited resources? And in answering these key questions, we must consider the range of possible options available, their feasibility at scale and likelihood of success. Faced with limited resources, we'll need to evaluate critical trade-offs. Should we, for example, focus on saving high-value tourist reefs that support thousands of jobs and tens of millions of dollars of economic activity, or should we concentrate on solutions that will protect the largest number of ecologically important sites? Whatever we do, we need to consider the inherent uncertainty of intervening, the risks and costs of doing so, and the inevitability of varying community views split between choice paralysis and a drive to just do something. At the Australian Institute of Marine Science, we're working with partner organizations in the Reef Restoration and Adaptation Program to examine these questions through the kind of structured decision-making process that I've described to help decision makers navigate this complex seascape. Our early work suggests that successful solutions are likely to be compromises, and more so under severe climate change. We also know that it's probably going to be a combination of measures that is going to be the path forward. We are unlikely to be able to save everything especially as we confront other impacts of climate change, from coastal inundation to droughts, fires, and the collapse of other key ecosystems. In working to save the world's coral reefs, it has never been more important to bring rigor, clarity, and transparency to decision-making. Thank you. That's uh, Paul Hardesty, CEO of the Australian Institute of Marine Science in Queensland. And that talk was actually recorded yesterday at a live Occam's Razor event in Townsville, their first live show of 2020 to mark one of the world's biggest sex events. Hold the phones. Uh, it was happening off the water on the North Queensland coast. Yes, apparently it's the annual mass coral spawning, which is happening this weekend at the Great Barrier Reef.